This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. On pain.tv. Staring at their phone, flipping, 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 refreshing, 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 trying to get a grocery delivery order from Instacart, or freaking out, thinking they're going to lose their home, or they're not going to be able to pay their rent, or they're not going to be able to put food on the table because they can't pick up another order from McDonald's to drop off at some other poor person's house. That's dignity, folks. That is dignity and autonomy we'll get into because it's a very important part of us. It's wired into our very DNA. And so, again, this paper was written 27 years ago. Let's get into part three. If the system breaks down, the consequences will still be very painful. But the bigger the system grows, the more disastrous the results of its breakdown will be. So if it is to break down, it had best break down sooner rather than later. And so we already know what the outcome was. The system did not break down. The technological system, the governmental system, the government structure around the world has only grown stronger, not weaker. And therefore, the technological system, the technocracy, which is just a government ruled by the scientists and ruled by the engineers, and in this case, the people managed and controlled by this technological prison planet, has only gotten stronger. And so the case this author was making 27 years ago was if the system was going to break down and collapse, it would be painful, yes, but it would be less painful than if the system were to break down and collapse today. Think about it. It would be. We are now another one, two generations into people who were born into technology that the phone, that video games, 
that doing everything from a computer screen, from a tablet, is now built into them. It's part of their body. It's an extension of their very being. As Elon Musk and others have told us, people are cyborgs. Ray Kurzweil and others have talked about it. Dennis Bushnell, the NASA chief scientist for the last 40 years, bragged about how three-year-olds have computers and how they're using their phones to text each other instead of communicate on a playground. You see, the fall from technology today would be much more painful than the fall 27 years ago. Do I think it's going to fall? No. Do I see a breakdown coming? No. The only way a true breakdown comes and not orchestrated, so we're not talking about if the elites, if the World Economic Forum and their cohorts organize a power outage to starve out a bunch of people. I'm talking about if a meteor struck or something like that, and it took out the satellites and the internet, it would be a hard fall for sure. Everything, everything, our homes, our food supply chains are all run on technology, so it would be difficult. But it would also be, I I mean, I think in the end, it would actually end up better than where we are headed. But that's just my belief, and we'll discuss this as we go on throughout this piece. Let's get into part four. We therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. So to tell you, this author was writing we as if it was representative of a group of a mentality. So let's say I was writing this, I'd say, Speaking on your behalf, if you give me that permission, we therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. This revolution may or may not make use of violence. It may be sudden. Again, this is his words, not my words. I don't want to get thrown off any platforms for invoking violence. This revolution may or may not make use of violence. It may be sudden or it may be a relatively gradual process spanning a few decades. We can't predict any of that, but we do outline in a very general way the measures that those who hate the industrial system should take in order to prepare the way for a revolution against that form of society. So basically, he's laying this case that there could be a revolution against the industrial technological system. Although I've said on this show, I don't see it happening. And you'll see in this paper, I don't necessarily agree that the tactics and the strategy he laid out even 27 years ago would be effective. And they were obviously not effective, or we would not be finding ourselves facing the World Economic Forum, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and the technocracy that we're moving into. This is not to be a political revolution. Its, obje- uh, its object will be to overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society. Right, So he's talking about overthrowing the economic and technological basis of the present society. The technological part, yes, but as you can see, it's alive and well. And I think part of the purpose of the World Economic Forum being put in charge of think tanking the Great Reset and then ushering us into this fourth industrial revolution is to collapse the third industrial era and move us into a more technological system. And here is where I will go on a little bit of a tangent because it's important. If you want to break things down and look at the world pre-Trump, 
from a conservative liberal perspective or a right-left perspective or a Republican-Democrat perspective. Generally, the Republicans and the Democrats were arguing about the same problems, right? Same problems. Taxes are too high, uh, you know, more time with your family, less time at work, college loans. I mean, generally the same set of problems. The issue is that the solutions were so far apart. The Republicans used to, used to, used to, not anymore. They used to advocate, at least through lip service, for smaller governments. So the solution to high taxes was that they advocated for less government, less taxes. The left solution generally was for more government. So if you took the, let's say, the 2016 to 2020 era was, say, a Donald Trump representing the conservatives and a Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, hey, Bernie Sanders, we're going to go 0.01% of the 1% and 0.02% of the bagel and put the locks on the bagel. I'm going to eat the bagel and the locks and the pickled herring and the pickled cucumbers. We're going to eat the pickled cucumbers in Brooklyn and put it over here. We're going to put it here. No, I'm not going to do it, Bernie. We're not going to do it. You're so stupid. So stupid. Look at Bernie. So dumb. He looks like... Doc Brown, Doc Brown, everybody knows Doc Brown, so beautiful, from Back to the Future. Who wouldn't want to go back to the future? I know a lot about futures, and I love to grab the backs. You know, the backs, the backside, unbelievable. And so, no, if you take Trump and Bernie, you would have people arguing about sort of the same problem, but the solution from the left was bigger government, the solution from the right was supposedly less government, and you're seeing that coming out of the World Economic Forum. The solution to the problems they lay out, like climate change and population and all of this other stuff, their solution is always more technology, where my solution would be less technology. Roll it back and reduce the size of government, roll it back and get rid of technology. Now, their solution to fixing the problems that they created through technology is to develop more technology to manage the problems created by technology you see how it works do you understand what i'm saying because it's i mean it's important to get this the the left and right generally argued about the same problems the cost let's say let's say the cost of living is high so the republicans would say reduce the size of government cut the cost of living because we, the government won't cost as much to operate. The left would say, grow government bigger. Let's have more programs to investigate the cost of living. Let's give people money. Let's tax more to give more away. Well, the technologists are the same. So it's always this problem-reaction-solution. Create the problem, provoke the reaction from the plebeians, us, and then offer the solution, which is more government, more technology. And that's what we're seeing uh, that they're talking about here, where it's, this is not to be a political revolution. Its object will be to overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society. So they want reduction in technology they were advocating for. Let's do number five. Five, in this article, we give attention to only some of the negative developments that have grown out of the industrial technological system. Other such developments we mention only briefly or ignore altogether. Uh, other such developments we mention only briefly or ignore altogether. 
This does not mean that we regard these other developments as unimportant. For practical reasons, we have to confine our discussion to areas that have received insufficient public attention or in which we have something new to say. So it's very important. It's like these shows that I do. Every one of the episodes I've done, I could have made them 100 hours with everything I wanted to talk about, but you have to boil it down into sort of these two-hour shows. Otherwise, it's too much for people to swallow. And I also don't want to necessarily be redundant and talk about what others have talked about. I'm trying to take this complex subject and boil it down into layman's terms and talk to you about it in the way that I understand it uh, and try to simplify it for you, and that's what they're going to do in this paper. So, for example, since there are well-developed environmental and wilderness movements, we have written very little about environmental degradation or the destruction of wild nature, even though we consider these to be highly important. So, that just echoes what I said, is that we're breaking this down. Uh, This paper is going to be broken down, and they're going to talk about the important parts back 27 years ago, but you're going to see how those things they're discussing are so relevant to today and did this paper that was published widely across the country have any effect on accelerating or decelerating the advancement of the technological system in which we find ourselves in today and unfortunately it did not ladies and gentlemen i am dustin gold this is the dustin gold standard and i will be right back after this short commercial break you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv or listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. I lost my dignity in the United States, and I'll leave my voice in Poland. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we are back to covering industrial society and its future. A paper written in 1995, 27 years ago, having to do with what the future would look like if the technological industrial system was not uh, overthrown, was not stopped and so we find ourselves 27 years later where none of that occurred nothing was stopped nothing was undone nothing was even slowed down and in the last two years since covid land kicked off in march of 2020 it has only accelerated i see ourselves in a different world um since the 2016 beginning of Donald Trump's presidency, you know, beginning of 2017, but the campaign of 2015-16. Uh, and I don't see things really through the right-left, conservative-liberal lens anymore. But this paper really is going to open your eyes and explain to you some of what you have witnessed over the years and kind of it's going to make a lot more 
sense to you. So let's get into this section, the psychology of modern leftism. And remember, this is from 1995. The psychology of modern leftism, six, uh, part six. Almost everyone will agree that we live in a deeply troubled society. And in 95, that was probably accurate. Today, it's accurate as two. Everyone has a grievance. They all believe society is troubled. Whether you identify as the right or the left or Biden or Trump, you agree that something is troubled. Nothing is perfect. One of the most widespread manifestations of the craziness of our world is leftism. I repeat, one of the most widespread manifestations of craziness of our world is leftism. So a discussion of the psychology of leftism can serve as an introduction to the discussion of the problems of modern society in general. Did you get that? Did you understand what he's saying? Discussion of the psychology of leftism, the psychology of leftism can serve as an introduction to the discussion of the problems of modern society in general. So we'll start with leftism and then we're going to move through society overall. Number seven, but what is leftism? And this is good that they're defining it because we used to define things. Now everything is, is are these blurred lines. There used to be black and white. Everything now is gray. So I'm glad that this author was defining this in 95. What is leftism? During the first half of the 20th century, leftism could have been practically identified with socialism, right? And so we were shouting that, many of us that came from the conservative side were shouting that for years, that leftism was practically identified with socialism. Today, and this is in 1995, the movement is fragmented, and it is not clear who can probably uh, properly be called a leftist. So see, in 95, there was the breakdown of these labels, very similar to what I was talking about during our time, modern time. When we speak of leftists in this article, we have in mind mainly socialists, collectivists, quote, politically correct, end quote, types, feminists, gay and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like, okay? So we're talking leftists as socialists, collectivists, politically correct types, feminists, gay and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like, all of which could be considered a Trump conservative. Hmm. Think about that. But not everyone who is associated with one of these movements is a leftist. Well, he just clarified it. What we are trying to get at in discussing leftism is not so much movement or an ideology as a psychological type, or rather a collection of related types. Thus, what we mean by leftism will emerge more clearly in the course of our discussion of leftist psychology. In paragraphs 227, 230, he's going to get into this. We are in paragraph 7 right now. Moving on to paragraph 8. Even so, our conception of leftism will remain a good deal less clear than we would wish, but there doesn't seem to be any remedy for this. 
all we are trying to do here is indicate in a rough and approximate way the two psychological tendencies that we believe are the main driving force of modern leftism. And the parts that we're reading right now is his introduction into the paper because he's trying to sort of introduce you to what he's going to talk about and then sort of break down uh, some of the labels, uh, definitions of the labels that he has to use in order to make this case. We by no means claim to be telling the whole truth about leftist psychology. Also, our discussion is meant to apply to modern leftism only. We leave open the question of the extent to which our discussion could be applied to the leftists of the 19th and early 20th centuries. So he's talking about in current times, 1995. But you will see the labels may have changed, but the psychology of the type of person he's describing has definitely not changed. Number nine, paragraph nine. The two psychological tendencies that underlie modern leftism, we call, quote, feelings of inferiority, end quote, feelings of inferiority, right? And, quote, over socialization, end quote. So he's talking about the two psychological tendencies of the modern left of 95 were feelings of inferiority and over-socialization. And I would argue, if I were writing a paper today, that the people that I would classify on the left or who would identify as left, even many who actually identify on the right, but kind of snuck over to the right, but I would say that you'd classify those two psychological tendencies to be the same today as it was in 95, feelings of inferiority and over-socialization. Of course, the people that identify as the left would never admit to have feelings of inferiority. Over-socialization, I believe, is something that they take pride in. Feelings of inferiority are characteristic of modern leftism as a whole, while over-socialization is characteristic only of a certain segment of modern leftism. But this segment is highly influential. So he's saying that the feelings of inferiority encompass all of the leftists, where the over-socialization is a segment of leftism, but it's one of the most highly influential segments of leftism Therefore, it's important for us to understand this. Moving on to the next section, feelings of inferiority, paragraph 10. By feelings of inferiority, we mean not only inferiority feelings in the strict sense, but a whole spectrum of related traits. So these are related traits of the leftists. Low self-esteem. I agree. Feelings of powerlessness. Oh, I agree. Depressive tendencies. Yes. Defeatism. Yes. Guilt. Yes. Self-hatred, etc. So one of the key two components of a leftist is feelings of inferiority, right? And over-socialization. And under feelings of inferiority, we have a spectrum of of traits, which are low self-esteem, feelings of powerlessness, depressive tendencies, defeatism, guilt, self-hatred, 
and others. We argue that modern leftists tend to have some such feelings, possibly more or less repressed, and that these feelings are decisive in determining the direction of modern leftism. And I would agree with that. You're going to see this all this all plays a part in why society has broken down to where it is and why I believe that these technocrats are able to manipulate us and why they are winning this war against humanity. That's what I see it as. It's a war against humanity. It's anti-humans versus humans. But we humans just don't recognize that yet. So, number 11, when someone interprets as derogatory almost anything that is said about him or about groups with whom he identifies, we conclude that he has inferior inferiority feelings or low self-esteem. Think about how true that is. The left is always, 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 always offended, 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 offended if they're gay and you don't like it, offended if their friend is gay, if they just identify with a group of gays, offended if they think that you don't like black guys, offended by every single thing. They could be the whitest person in the world. They could look like Casper the Friendly Ghost. They could look like Powder from the movie. And yet these people are highly offended if they think in any way whatsoever that you are demeaning black people. This tendency is pronounced among minority rights activists, whether or not they belong to the minority groups whose rights they defend. See, that's what I was just talking about. They are hypersensitive about the words used to designate minorities and about anything that is said concerning minorities. The terms Negro, Oriental, handicapped or chick for an African, an Asian, a disabled person, or a woman originally had no derogatory connotation. Broad and chick were merely the feminine equivalents of guy, dude, or fellow. That's all true. The negative connotations have been attached to these terms by the activists themselves. This is what we talk about, how these people hijack terms. They hijack symbols like the rainbow. Who the hell gave them the right to take the rainbow? Some animal rights activists have gone so far as to reject the word pet and insist on its replacement by animal companion. And we still see that to this day. Leftists anthropologists go to great lengths to avoid saying anything about primitive peoples that could conceivably be interpreted as negative, right? This is how we redefine the terminology in science, how we're redefining terminology even in English class and history because everything is offensive. They seem almost paranoid about anything that might suggest that any primitive culture is inferior to our own. And then in parentheses, authors note, we do not mean to imply that primitive cultures are inferior to ours. We merely point out the hypersensitivity of leftist anthropologists. And that is 100% true. It's 100% true. They change the language and they've hijacked words and terms and changed definitions. Right now, we are literally changing Sex, we are changing gender, are we not? Are we not? 
We are. That's a continuation of what this author discusses in 1995. Folks, I am Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard, and I will be right back after this short commercial break. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. 